The Way Out Podcast, episode 304. What is your name? Leah Laux. Leah, of what are you in recovery from? Um, well, I'm in recovery from uh, my husband's active phase of alcoholism. And I'm in, I'm in Al-Anon and working on my side of the street. So you're in the family side of recovery. Yes. I love being able to have somebody on the Way Out podcast that's on the family side of recovery. It's such an important part of recovery to celebrate. And it is very much a underrepresented and sometimes underappreciated element of recovery. Yeah, thanks so much for saying that and having me on because I feel like, you know, everyone's connected to someone and, you know, I wanted to share my story to, you know, give some hope to, to other family members and also, you know, that, you know, that it's a disease and that, you know, if we're, you know, the family members were working on our street and, you know, supporting our loved ones that can only, you know, kind of help the cause and, you know, and that, that's why I'm here to share my story. And as family members with someone that is either in active addiction or in recovery from addiction, there's things that the family needs to address and the family needs to work on uh, themselves in order to get better. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like too, like, you know, I had my two rock bottoms. My first rock bottom was um, when I found, I mean, I knew my husband was a heavy drinker, but I guess I didn't, he was sort of hiding the, the severity of how bad it got. And so I basically had to take him to the ER and he was pretty much near like, you know, a lethal overdose status. And the ER doctor basically told him that you know, he has the highest blood alcohol level he's ever seen. And he was diagnosed with um, beginning liver failure at 40. So that's sort of like my rock bottom. And then later on, you have a rock bottom, I think, sometimes as like a caretaker and, um, you know, and keeping everything together and that you kind of hit a rock bottom of like, when is it my turn? Like, when is it going to be like a chance where I can, you know, try to move forward with, you know, with putting myself first in a way. Absolutely. And being able to start to do things like set boundaries. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there was a therapist I write um, in my book that totally just changed my life. And, and that's why, you know, I like to, to share too, because I think that once the family members recover and, and that sort of thing. And we work on our side of the street. It only helps our loved ones to know that, you know, our, we're hurt by the same disease and I don't blame you. I, you know, I understand it's a disease and it, the disease hurt us both, but in different ways. And But in order for us to both recover, we have to work on our side of the street, you know, in a, in a way together, but separate, if that makes sense. Absolutely. As a family member, in recovery do you keep a recovery date like we do as recovering addicts and alcoholics 
Um, yeah, actually, my husband and I sort of share a sober bursary because I um, live a sober lifestyle to support him. So when he went to rehab, um, I was my first Al-Anon meeting when he the first week in rehab. And I um, was going to go to Al-Anon just for like the, you know, the six or eight weeks he was in rehab. But it's been almost three years now. And I'm kind of one of the leaders in my group. And um, and I go for the same sort of reason that people go to recovery groups of like sharing your story for newcomers and to offer your strength and your, you know, um, your, you know, that your experience and hope to others. And so, yeah, my husband and I have, have the same sober bursary. And what is that? It is, um, act- it's around Halloween. It's like October 19th, 2019 was was when um, I wrote the when that all kind of went down and I wrote the book. So it's almost three years now. Congratulations to you <laughs> and your husband on, I would call substantial and meaningful recovery. Yeah, thanks so much for saying that. Yeah, and the person that helped, that's benefited the most is our five-year-old son who um now it's like, you know, I like to share about recovery because, you know, my husband wasn't ever like violent with us or anything, but he was just sort of checked out. And um, one of the things I most like sort of regret were, you know, I didn't realize the, like the severity, not that I could have done anything with my husband. I mean, you have to choose to, you know, mm-hmm. your own path and getting healthy, but um, that he was so checked out with us and, um that now just to see how he interacts with our son he's like the coach of his soccer team and they go fishing and they do cross country together and you know he's with my our son now so i can do the podcast and it's just so heartwarming to see that you know our son came home with um something he had made in school the other day and and it said the prompt was what do you like most about yourself and he says because i'm happy oh (laughs) <laughs> like that's so heartwarming amazing. yeah and you know and that's that's what we want to do and that's why i kind of chose to live the sobriety thing not that i was you know I, I think everyone sort of in a way has addiction type tendencies i'm going to go off on a limb that like i feel like we all sort of numb our pain in unhealthy ways sometimes so i can like relate to that of like i wasn't i don't feel like i was an addict per se but i know that i i drank at times that was not a healthy coping mechanism. So I now feel like more healthy because I have other strategies and tools that Mm. are, you know, to kind of put that in perspective. And also for our son, not that I can control what his future will be, but to sort of not have that environment that he's picking up on that modeling at home that, you know, that we're trying to model like more healthy lifestyle for him. You know, we can't, I can't, you know, say if he'll get the alcoholism gene. I mean, he would be the fourth generation in our family. But what I can control is like doing what I need to do to model a healthy lifestyle for him. Absolutely. And one of the biggest things I learned in recovery is that I need to focus my time, effort, and energy on being the best example of recovery I can be on a daily basis unless on trying to preach to my children 
what they should and should not do or lecture them on what they should or should not do and way more time on practicing these principles that I'm learning and modeling good behavior. And that is going to have a far greater impact on my children and the people around me than anything that's going to come out of my mouth. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I was like, live and let live in the serenity prayer. Like <laughs> two like great things that you can use for parenting, for absolutely. work life, for really thing that where you need to like you know be on your side of the street and like that's all you can really do to your point certainly not everybody's an addict but i do fundamentally believe that the principles that we work in recovery Mm -hmm. are universally beneficial across the human condition oh absolutely now you've mentioned a couple things that you already do to serve the recovery community but i'm gonna ask you How do you serve the recovery community, Leah? Yeah, thanks for asking that. I actually, um, when my husband was in rehab, um, the therapist there asked us to write a, um, an impact letter. And then, you know, we went to the family training, that sort of thing. So the, the impact letter I wrote, my husband sort of started this, um, this kind of coping mechanism where I would start writing and I found that writing for me was um was a very like healthy way of me to sort Mm. of process my pain but to extend it like outside of myself so I could use it like in a productive like healthy way Mm. and when I went to um, my recovery group I would share different like writing or, or on social media things about like recovery and addiction and that sort of thing and and I got like a really good response from it and um and so I would, you know, just kind of share that sort of thing. And um, when I was going through my husband's active phase, I, um, you know, you just, you so you feel so hurt and like alone. And um, there's not really a lot of like really books or, you know, things that are told from a, like a family member's perspective. Like I read um, David Chef's Beautiful Boy mm. and I, that, that gave me a little hope, but there wasn't like something that was told by like you know a, a partner like in a loving and understanding way but also like going through like the hurt and like the betrayal sometimes of like loving somebody that like you understand it's a disease but you feel so hurt by the mm. disease um so i ended up writing the book that i needed and um i did it because i wanted somebody that was like in my shoes not to feel so alone and it's written sort of a diary in a way of like where I started and like where I came from and then at the end you know how, how it sort of ended up how it how we worked on our marriage and that sort of thing so um so I wrote that and um and I also recorded an audiobook like told in my I narrated it because I wanted someone to have what I needed when I was going through it and to start that dialogue, that awareness that we should talk about things, you know, and, and keep them out in the open because addiction is such a thing that's, you know, there's such stigma to it and people don't feel comfortable, like, you know, talking about it as much and and we need to bring things out in the light. And that's why I wrote my, my title of Fireflies because, 
you know, the bioluminescence of the beetle, that's how you communicate, that's how they communicate through light. And that's why I titled it that. And that's why I wrote it. It's absolutely beautiful. And the way you wrote it is so sincere and authentic that as I read it, I genuinely feel the heart and the soul in what you are writing rather than perhaps trying to write the perfect book from a from a composition perspective this is so beautifully written because it's so sincere and authentic and i really appreciate that yeah thanks so much for saying that like i said i only really did it not that like i wanted to be an author or something but i i just felt like really compelled to give back in that way because i know how hurt I felt and like, you know, when you love someone that, you know, my husband was pretty much on, you know, it was either life or death when he went into rehab and um, he almost died before rehab and during rehab, during his detox, they called me at work and just said, you know, he's not doing well, you know, and to be, you know, 36 with a three-year-old and you're, you know, considering if you're going to be a widow, that kind of hurt really. Um, you need somewhere healthy to put that hurt okay. and to forgive someone and to move on and be healthy. And um, and so I just felt that there had to be someone out there that needed to hear that, you know, that. Absolutely. Um, no question. I was just going to say the first like um, email that I got, because I, I told it, you know, I'm a, a woman in my 30s and a working mother. and. You know, and the first um, email I got was actually from a man that was like, you know, my my wife is an alcoholic mm. and, you know, and, and I feel like it, it sort of, um, you know, a lot of people can relate to that, I think. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, it's just for, you know, Absolutely. X, Y, and Z. That Without I think question. Super related. Relate to. Absolutely. Leah, what does recovery mean to you? I think it, for me, it just means like that, you know, I think of it as one day at a time. And I just feel like I have this this day where it's like I can pretty much do whatever I want. Like, I feel like it's freeing in a way, like you don't have to be perfect. You've taken away that facade of like that you're you have to be OK all the time and that you realize that you have this one day so you can really do like whatever it is that brings you joy i feel like that's so freeing you know that you realize you have this short time um and that you want to give back to others you know we have such a beautiful recovery community and and that's how we you know you have to give it away if you want to keep it the freedom mm -hmm. to live in the here Ed now to be present and to really experience life in an increasingly fuller and more present way. Oh, absolutely. And I was just going to say, um, when my husband got back from rehab, there's a really sweet story that, um, you know, it's like you're kind of picking up the pieces and, you know, and, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be easy, but it's worth it, you know, and um, if, if that's what you choose and that's what we chose, but, um, you know, to repair our marriage. But um, we went on this, it was around the, like the holiday times and um, 
we went on the Santa train with our son. And then we get home and I was just like, you know, how do you like the, you know, the train and that sort of thing? Because, you know, when he was active, he would just, you know, stay home and drink and he wasn't really present mm -hmm. with us or anything. So my son and I would just sort of detach with love and kind of go off on our own adventures and that try to live our life, you know, because that's kind of what you have to do sometimes, you know. And um, so anyways, he was like, it made me sad. And like mm -hmm. the Santa train made you sad? Like because of all the time that I missed with you, mm -hmm. you know, and then that, that savor, you know, that now that you get sober and you're in recovery of like, now, like, think of all the things we can do, you know, think of all the, the you know, the happy times that we have now, it's like, I'm alive, I'm mm -hmm. present, like, you know, I'm going to go for it. That's amazing. And those are those little moments that end up really making the experience of life feel worthwhile. Oh, absolutely. And I was going to say, too, that my husband doesn't know, like, a ton about soccer. And, you know, with, you know, the COVID and everything, like, the things were shut down. So our son wanted to be on a soccer team. And they didn't have enough um, volunteer coaches. So despite my husband not knowing, you know, much about soccer, he felt compelled to volunteer because I feel like, you know, now that you're, you know, you're in recovery, you have to like give back. And he told his sponsor about it and his sponsor was like, that's just one of the unexpected gifts of sobriety. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you're here, you're Without present, question. you're going to say yes. yes. You know, it might scare you a little bit, but you've, you've been on death's door, so you might as well go for it, you know, and live, live the life that you, you know beyond your wildest imagination you know no doubt we can live outside of our comfort zone <laughs> yeah. when we are in recovery and that's where the magic happens mm -hmm. absolutely welcome way out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the way out podcast we appreciate your ears our mission is simple to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out Podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. 
We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this edition of The Way Out, we bring you my interview with author of the new book, Fireflies, Finding Light on a Journey Through Addiction, and person in long-term recovery on the family side, Leah Lauks. Leah shares with us her journey to and through recovery and sheds important light on how addiction and alcoholism affects the lives of those who live with and love the person suffering from a substance use disorder. She shares that there's help for those who find themselves in the throes of the chaos created by addiction. And Leah found that help in large part through the support and working the 12 steps of Al-Anon. As you'll soon hear for yourself, Leah's story, and thus her book, serves as a testament that recovery on the family side of addiction is possible and absolutely worth it. So listen up. Leah Lauks, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on The Way Out podcast. You are a person in long-term recovery on the family side. You are an author, and you're here with us to share your story and to talk about the new book that you wrote, Fireflies, Finding Light on a Journey Through Addiction. Before we get into your journey to and through recovery to this point and to talk about your new book, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll get started. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me and all the good work you're doing. I'm excited. And, um, and I love to talk about, you know, my side of the street because I think that that sort of um, helps our recovery community to kind of see, you know, um, you know, that we're hurt by the disease too. And, um, and that, you know, to kind of come together in a way. Um, I'm actually a speech language pathologist by trade and um, I'm um, in my thirties working mom. I have a five-year-old with my husband, David, and um, I grew up in upstate New York on the Canadian border to a um, school administrator father and a teacher mother. So I was always kind of expected to be a high achiever, which, Mm. um, you know, you kind of have to recover from being a high functioning perfectionist, <laughs> I think, in a way. So I can absolutely. Um, <laughs> we all have our journey. Indeed. And and uh, my husband uh, David is a um, healthcare professional, and um, we've been married almost nine years. We have our anniversary this month and our soberversary in the fall near Halloween. Tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in upstate New York for you, a little bit about your family and what life was like. Um, I mean, I guess it was just like a normal sort of suburban um, upbringing in a way. Um, I have an older sister and, you know, we did 
you know, lots of winter type sports. And um, we have like a family vacation. We go every year to Lake Placid, New York in the Adirondacks and go skiing and that sort of thing. So yeah, nothing. I mean, my parents weren't, my mom's like a teetotaler. My dad just pretty much, you know, drank beer when he watched sports. So I didn't have any, um, I didn't grow up with like an addict per se or anything like that. So um, I didn't really know too much about the disease, honestly. So. Okay. So sounds like a pretty idyllic childhood and you grow up in a, a upstate New York. Does everybody in upstate New York have to be a Buffalo Bills fan? Is that just the way it works? <laughs> I mean, my dad is, but I mean, <laughs> I, I, I just think like that's probably a requirement. <laughs> now, they are like the AFC version of the Minnesota Vikings because they've been to four Super Bowls and lost all of them, just like the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's definitely a sore spot this year. Right. Especially. Us too. So you know, I feel like, you know, we've got this connection. Leah, right. And uh, where we almost get there a lot of times, but don't seal the deal. So that's a that's a special connection that we share. You end up going to college after a high school and you um, start your career. How do you meet David? How does that go? Um, we actually met online. Um, we met on eHarmony. <laughs> you did? Back in the day before, like, online dating was as kosher. Like, now it, it seems like it's more acceptable, but we actually met online. Yes. We have a lot in common. Yeah. Um, we're, you know, very family oriented. We went into like, you know, um, helping careers. We, you know, we like nature and animals. So we really had a lot of like core, you know, things in common, I guess. We sort of wanted the same sort of lifestyle. You know, we like, you know, adventure and we both kind of have a, you know, f- sarcastic sense of humor. And I, um, yeah, I just we just kind of clicked right away. So you meet online, which is super common these days. And the um, um, 10 years ago, it was like a little more. <laughs> <empty>. <laughs> now it's like totally fine. But 10 years ago, your parents are like, you did what now? <laughs> <laughs> this is true. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, even 10 years ago, I just think people were less comfortable talking about it. Like, I still think many, many, many people were meeting online and then making up an alternative story about how they met. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, people have been meeting online for a long time. And it's now, like you said, I think we're socially acceptable, but it's been happening for years. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. So you meet online and you have a lot in common. You start uh, dating and it goes well. You end up moving in together. How does uh, how does that relationship work in the beginning? Is Are things pretty good? Yeah, definitely. You know, it, it's sort of like if, you know, it, it felt like, you know, he's he's my soulmate. Like it's, it sounds cheesy, but like, you know, it's just he, we sort of get each other you know we sort of um you know I almost feel like adversity sort of brings us closer together you know we just sort of we just sort of you know it's in a relationship everything's not perfect but I think when it when the times are hard we we support one another 
Absolutely. Leah, did you notice that David was a heavy drinker when you first met or at any point in the early part of your relationship? Yeah, I think he always was a heavy drinker. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like sometimes that line is really hard to understand because our society is so ingrained with with that kind of culture where it's hard to see what, you know, is clinical versus, you know, he was a big guy. And, you know, a lot of times he would drink, you know, Chardonnay. It's not like he was, you know, kicking a keg or anything like that, where it's like, you know, having a few, you know, I mean, for him, it was, you know, polishing off a bottle of wine at night or something, but Um, I mean, he would go to work and do, you know, the responsibilities that he was supposed to do. So, I mean, it didn't seem like in the beginning, it really affected our relationship in the beginning, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And it's a great point because we live in a culture that's indoctrinated in the consumption of alcohol. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and just being like, you know, the wine mom culture, I'm, you know, a working mom. It's like, oh, I had, you know, my my kid did X, Y and Z have a drink or it's like that's a really toxic thing to say. Like you made me need to drink like that. Once you sort of, you know, are on the side of recovery, you realize, like, do we really need to have mimosas at somebody's baby shower? Is that like, you know, is that like really a healthy way of like I had a bad day? I'm going to drink. I had a good day. I'm going to drink. It's like. I don't, you know, you kind of realize that, you know, every social occasion has, you know, alcohol there. And then it's you're kind of thinking a little bit more about that. And it makes it difficult to understand where the line Mm -hmm. is from alcohol use to alcohol abuse to alcoholism. Absolutely. So always a heavy drinker, polishing off a bottle of wine at night. But he's a big guy. Big guy. And when you think about it, you know, you can justify it. It's only four or five glasses when you're a six foot tall, 200 pound guy and you're drinking like Chardonnay. It's like, well, it's not like he's, you know, drinking a a fifth of vodka or something. You know, you kind of think. Absolutely. He's not polishing off a 24 pack of Coors. Right. And he's going to work and do it, you know, at a high level job and he's doing what he needs to be doing in our relationship. It's not like, you know, he's living under a bridge or something. You've got all the external (laughs) things that indicate that everything's okay. House cars. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and he's a doctor, you know, of all of all people you think like, well, has it together. I mean, like he's more educated than I am. I assumed he had everything under control. I mean, right. Absolutely. Without question, what we learn later is that one of the things us addicts and alcoholics are extremely adept at is hiding our addiction. Yeah. And you used a term in your book, Jekyll and Hyde, which I absolutely identify with in my own experience it was really important for me to ensure that everything else on the exterior was in place Mm -hmm. so that i could drink 
the way I wanted to drink and increasingly as my disease progressed needed to drink on a daily basis. And so working very hard at Mm -hmm. making sure all those other boxes are checked. I go to work every day. I do the things that are expected of me from society so that I can continue to keep my addiction fed. And it sounds like that was very much the case for David. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, he would pick up our son from daycare and, you know, he made dinner every night. It's like, you know, by all appearances, I mean, and he is, he's a great husband. He's a great provider. He's educated. You know, it's like, um, for me, it was like, I wasn't hurt by his disease. I was more hurt that, um, by the betrayal of Mm. that he didn't feel he could come to me. Mm. And I recognize now that he probably wasn't accepting of his disease at first. And, um, and that also he didn't recognize that a and B that he thought that I would think less of him, that he had to keep this facade because he thought that, um, I don't know that I would think less of him or, but I was more hurt that, um, you know, this is my best friend. I, he's the person that I want to come to when I have a problem. And the fact that he has a significant life, you know, threatening problem. And, and I felt so hurt because it's like, you'd rather die than come clean to me. Like Mm. how horrible, like I thought that you trusted me and you could, you know, that we were a united front. So that really hurt me the most of like, um, that, you know, I could potentially lose him without him just telling me what was what was going on so we could try to work on it together. And especially from, you know, my history of like work, you know, I work in rehab. I'm a speech therapist. I help people with all sorts of problems try to overcome. I, you know, I was a medical speech pathologist with people with strokes and all sorts of things. And you know, of, an, of anyone, I felt like I should understand how to like help somebody that has a problem. I won't be turned off by that. But you know, that's the disease and um, the secrecy of the disease, I guess. Absolutely. And I can identify with that in my own experience that I wasn't ready for many years, 20 plus years to accept that I am an addict and an alcoholic and surrender to it. Mm-hmm. I'm on my third marriage. I try to be very careful not to tell somebody else's story. Yeah. But my now ex-wife looked at me one day and is like, you drink every day. I'm like, yeah, but. But baby. It's not a problem. It's only a few. And the problem with that, of course, is now that I've told her it's only a few, she's starting to count. Mm -hmm. And it's not an easy task to outsmart somebody that's a already smarter than you and be not drunk. And she quickly, yeah, she quickly understood it was way more than a few that I was consuming on a nightly basis. And like David with the wine, we can rationalize. Well, it's wine. Like, oh, yeah, that's not alcoholics. Don't drink 
wine no. or like you know in the summer he drinks mojitos all right right and i was, right. And I was, I was drinking ipas and you know really yeah, really stuff, you obnoxiously know? pretentious beer in an effort to convince myself and others that i was in fact not an alcoholic but i wasn't ready to accept it and right. admit it to myself let alone anybody else that I had a problem deep, deep, deep down inside. I absolutely knew I wasn't ready to come to terms with it yet. I was going to say, too, with my husband, um, when I told the therapist, the thing I was most hurt about was that he I felt like he was lying to me. It's like you almost feel like you're married to someone you don't even know. That was so hurtful to me. Um, you know, and they were just like, you know, it, and I could, you know, tell you're very intelligent. They're like, you know, the smarter the person is, the better they are at hiding it. And also um, that, you know, my husband said that me losing my self-determination with this disease was just the worst thing of like, you know, he, he you know, put himself through medical school and Absolutely. did X, Y, and Z. But the fact that he his life is spiraling out of control and he just is just you know like you know you can't do anything about it how you know um helpless you must feel you know and then you know you're the house of cards of like you know he just told me you know um you know I always loved him and always tried to be understanding but you know when I found out that he you know almost was a fatal overdose you know I just I can't stand by and watch you kill yourself. I said, listen, you either go, you know, I have to go to rehab or I will divorce you and I will get custody of our son and take you for everything you're worth. Like I'd never said anything that like terrible to him. But again, I, I recognize that I can't stand by and watch you kill yourself. And that's the only boundary that I have. It has to be either this or that. And, um, when I told it, we had an intervention and I, um, it cleared the house out when he was at work. We got whatever, our wine fridge, anything that had to do with alcohol. I threw out every single wine glass. I, my friend and I cleared the whole house out and, you know, it, um, it was very hurtful because, you know, you know, he had, you know, vodka bottles under his, he had like 16 vodka bottles under his desk. He drank in his office. So he didn't want me to clean up um, the office because he would, you know, pour vodka into soda cans and, and things like that. You know, there was liquor bottles in the toolbox in the mm. garage and, and things like that. That's, you know, when you live with someone and you, um, you know, they're living like a double life. It's very hurtful. Um, especially when you have a small child at home that, you know, that you don't want them to pick up with these things, or it could be dangerous, you know, very dangerous environment. And, um, so, you know, when he came home from work, I just, um, I had this uh, suitcase by, well, he came home after the, we cleaned the house out and I had his mother there. And, um, and I just said, we need to talk about your plans for rehab. Cause at that point he was diagnosed with early liver failure. So at that point it was, you know, liver die kind of situation. And, um, so he, he looked at the wine fridge he made no comment about the wine fridge, but he saw the suitcase and he said it became immediately alarmed. But the suitcase was actually for our son because I didn't want him to be home when we were discussing this and be alarmed. So I packed my son a suitcase to stay at his uh, daycare provider. So that was what that was about. Um, but 
he actually had voluntarily called his uncle, who's now 20 years sober, and um, t- for a facility. And he vol- he had looked it up, looked it up a rehab for medical professionals, and um, had started the process. And um, when his mother and I were at the table, and just saying, you know, like. Um, you know, talking about the, what we're going to, you know, the plan for that. And he looked relieved. Mm. It was sort of like, you know, the Calvary has arrived to help that I don't have to keep this facade because how exhausting is it to live this double life to not be able to be your authentic self until, I mean, how exhausting, I mean, he was just, I mean, his health, his mental health, his physical health. I mean, he just looked in his eyes, he just looked dead inside. I mean, how crushing. It, it was a so rel- relate to that. I could he was just a relief, like you know, in a way. His mother said Absolutely. he just looks relieved that like, finally the gig is up, you know. I don't have to live this daily hell anymore. He can stop running from <laughs> his addiction finally. I mean, it can, must yeah. I just can't imagine like the hell he was living through. Honestly, I mean, with when he start when he started, um, I visited him every week in rehab. They would have like a Sunday um, meeting, and I would. I mean, it was probably like a three hour drive, but I would come every week. To at first, in a way, it's like you know, I loved him, but I didn't like him. Mm. If that makes sense, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I've, I've so, told my children that a time or two. Right? I love like, you. I love I you. Like I want you, right you to yeah. be better and not die, but I could really wring your neck right now. Absolutely. So the stuff that I found out, I mean, he rang up like $10,000 in credit card debt, things like that, that I didn't, you know, know. And, um, but I, we would go visit him every week because, you know, I wanted to give him like, you know, the support and also to see like, you know, d- you got to do this. You don't leave me a widow, you know, don't leave your son without a father. You know, this is what you're, this, it's going to be hard, but if you do what you need to do, it'll be worth it. Mm, Absolutely. I can so identify with the simultaneous relief and pain Mm -hmm. that comes with finally surrendering to my addiction and alcoholism. I too went to treatment, by the way, so that I didn't have to get divorced. Now, I ended up getting divorced anyway. It was literally the best thing that ever happened to me because uh, I live a life today that's beyond my wildest dreams. And so that was the impetus. And uh, though that relationship didn't work out. She was an absolute saint because she allowed me to go to treatment on her insurance, mm-hmm. even though she hated my guts at the time. And, you know, there was a lot of stuff that happened yeah. that was just too far for her. And today I can accept that. And I have very much come to terms with that. Mm-hmm. But I was go to treatment just not to get divorced until I got into that treatment right. counselor's office. And I don't know why, but I just surrendered mm-hmm. for the first time in my entire life. And I got completely honest with that treatment counselor about all of it. Yeah. And it felt so freeing, yet so bad Oh, absolutely. at the same time. But I was 
so relieved to not have to run from this thing anymore that I've been running from all my life. It was an incredible feeling of peace to be able to know that I could now spend my energy trying to get better. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, and, and, and I'm not here to say like, oh, the, you know, if you read my book, like it'll save your marriage or anything like that. It's not not that way. Some people are just not meant to be together. There's no people are meant to be single. I just felt like, you know, this is my person. And absolutely. if he dies, I'll never. I just thought like if he dies, like I don't want to be remarried like this is he's my person and I'm going to try to try to support him because I know when when I was pregnant, I was literally sick every day. Mm. I was. I nearly died during childbirth and he was, you know, drinking heavily, but he showed up for me. And I know that he would have showed up for me if I was sick and that's the disease. I know that he would have done the same thing for me. And, um, and also too, that I don't think that he went to rehab for our marriage per se, because when, when I took him to the ER, the ER doctor showed him like doctor Mm -hmm. to doctor, these are your labs you can turn this around. If you don't, you are going to die. Like yeah. here's your liver values. And I think that that, from that, that was his rock bottom mm-hmm. to see how bad his, his medical health was. I mean, he was a wreck. Yeah. So honestly, I think he realized how much of a toll it was taken on his health. And it sounds like as you so well paint that picture in your book that he was ready because he had a treatment center picked out. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he had, he knew that he wanted to go to that specific program. It was for um, healthcare professionals. And and again, that's why I wrote my book too, because um, I know you, you know that, but a lot of people don't like realize that, you know, a lot of alcoholics and addicts can be nurses. They can be doctors. They can be therapists. They can be first responders. They can be geriatrics, teenagers, anyone really. I mean, the facility that he went to, they had an executive program. They had a first responder program. They had a medical professional program. I mean, some of his colleagues and his cohort were writing felony prescription drugs for opioids. They were, you know, do, you know, it can happen to anyone. And Without I, I, question. And what I say with COVID and, and all that sort of thing, people being at home, I, I you know, try to do share my story in podcasts because I worry that it's just going to, um, you know, cause more, you know, more people to be sick with the disease of all the things that bring you to your problems, staying home, isolating, drinking, drug use, that sort of thing, you know, and we're not meant to be isolated for long periods of time. And it is literally an Achilles heel for us addicts and alcoholics, because when we isolate, we are much more prone to relapse and to uh, getting into a place where we're feeling like a drink or a drug is the only answer. Well, yeah, especially when, you know, times are hard. It's just like really a symptom of what, you know, with my husband's case, you know, he had a lot of like emotional pain and he had mental, you know, emotional and physical pain that um, that he was, you know, numbing it with until he worked on kind of those those things, you know, he was an adult child of an alcoholic. So he had to heal some of those pains. Yes. Um, yes. One of the, the things was a symptom of that. No of doubt the about pain it. Pain that he was feeling. Absolutely. And one of the things I wanted to highlight is that, as you said, 
your husband was a really good father, mm-hmm. but he was checked out a lot. And I could so identify with that. I was wanting to be a part of it, but also very much wanting to check out with my substances, with my with my alcohol. I wanted people around me, but I wanted to be checked out in my own space and withdrawn and me and my alcohol. It sounds like David was very much that way. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, now he's like a completely, I mean, I always loved him, but he's so present now. He's so, you know, alive. He has so many hobbies. He enjoys, you know, different things with us. He's trying, you know, he, he was sort of like a shy, quiet person. And now he, he goes and talks at rehabs and he leads a a recovery group. And, you know, it's just really nice to see that he's more taking risks now and, um, you know, and, you know, being more authentic, you know, being more his authentic self where I think, you know, before it was, you know, just, you just want to stay home and drink. I mean, nobody wants to live that way. No. I mean, he had every excuse in the book of why we couldn't go out to dinner, (laughs) every excuse in the book. And then, you know, it's like, you sort of feel like you're sort of dying inside because it's like, you want to go out and live your life. It's like, but you're married to somebody who's like, you know, sort of like a brick wall in a way. It's like, you know, he had every excuse in the book of why we couldn't go out and do things, you know, and it's it's that's Leah was the same way. Like, I could so identify with that. And if I like, oh, well, I just started dinner. It's like, right. no, you have not. You absolutely have not. I'm tired. Well, so am I. Like we have a three year old kid, you know, it's like, come on now. <laughs> yeah, I could absolutely identify with that. And when I was absolutely forced to go out then I would pregame. Oh, yeah. And make sure that we could go somewhere that had alcohol. And so it was just a lot more work to do that. But I, you know, when I was forced to go out, I, I was capable of doing enough pre-gaming in order to get to my happy place when we were out. And then I would post game, but I would only want to be out for a fixed amount of time. And to your point, it was just such a relief not to have to continue to maintain that on a night in and night out, day in and day out basis. And that was such a big relief. Now, I want to talk about what your recovery program looked like as you entered the family side of recovery. David's in treatment, working on himself and working on getting well. And sounds like there's some mental health stuff that he's working on. That was absolutely the case for me. And I'm a huge advocate of that. Like he has depression and he had medication for it, but I knew that he had depression. So when he was active, I mean, you know, I think everyone that's married to somebody that has a substance abuse problem, like goes through the rigmarole of trying various things. But at that, and this was before I started like my recovery, but Mm -hmm. I just recognized that with his depression, that just harping on him would just make it worse. So that's why I, before I knew it was like that, that was actually what you were supposed to do. I just sort of detached with love because I thought that by getting down on him, it would just exasperate the drinking. So my son and I kind of just like did our own thing a Mm -hmm. lot of times and my husband would drink and then he would, you know, um, have hangovers, but you know, he was pretty much checked out, but that's all we could really do. I mean, if I was mean to him about it, it would make it worse with depression, you know? 
Absolutely. And he's going on his recovery journey and he's embarking on a mental health recovery journey, too, which I'm a huge advocate of. I really believe that for me, going on a therapeutic journey and a recovery journey in parallel was the secret combination for me that really unlocked and supercharged my recovery. And you start your own recovery at some point. (laughs) This is actually kind of a funny story. So I, there's not like a ton of a popular books and movies about addiction, really. I mean, there's all this sort of, you know, recovery type books, but at first you kind of want like a slow open, you know, and there wasn't really that much about it. And that's why I ended up writing my own book because Mm -hmm. there wasn't anything that was like relatable for spouses really in a way. But anyway, so I, I watched um, on Amazon, like the Lois Wilson, like when love's not enough movie or whatever. And then I actually went to Al-Anon. I went to, well, on my day off, I went to Al-Anon therapy and virtual marriage counseling. So it was like three day, three hours of like therapy on my day off. But <laughs> when I rolled into Al-Anon, oh my gosh, I was such a hot mess. I'm so embarrassed. Like, I, cause you know, I like to try to come across a certain kind of way. Like I'm educated, try to hold it together. I was such a hot mess there. I felt so embarrassed. Like the chair of my meeting was like a grandmotherly type woman. She just like holds me, like holds me to like her bosom while I just like wail. <laughs> and that's, you know, and that's, um, you know, people think, oh, like Alan on you go and like trash your life. Like, no, it's not that we don't talk about, like, we don't, you know, I don't, I, I barely even mention you know, David, but we, we share love and, and our experience and our hope. And, you know, we have our readers and, and we sort of share from, from our experiences and that sort of thing. So I felt, um, you know, a, a kinship with the other members of our group and I had a really good therapist and, um, in marriage counseling, we had, um, through the rehab, which was great. So the old conception, perhaps, that what folks do in Al-Anon is complain about their partner and their drinking is fundamentally untrue. Yeah. And the recovery program of Al-Anon is squarely focused on the things that the family member needs to do in order to get well. Oh, absolutely. And I was going to say, too, that even like um, I've talked to, you know, some I've gone to some like AA groups and just kind of shared my story for the other side of the street. And they're like, you know, now that I'm sober, I can recognize that some of the Al-Anon principles of how to interact like health like a healthy relationship with my loved ones because I am like the adult child of an alcoholic or addict or I have you know and now that I'm sober I kind of need to learn those principles of detaching or you know how to you know that sort of thing so I I I feel like the principles are helpful for a lot of people you know absolutely having boundaries and and that's how to interact how to realize that I can't control this situation all I can do is focus on myself and do my self-care all those principles are helpful for honestly anyone beyond the recovery community I think without question and I love the Al-Anon three C's 
yeah, that's that was so helpful <laughs> to me because by like you know just growing up in like you know in a religious family, it was like I must have done something to make my husband an alcoholic, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but then you're like, oh no, that no, I didn't cause it. I didn't do anything. Yeah, right? I can't cure it, and I can't I control, can't control it, right? it. I could potentially contribute to it, but I didn't yes. Right. Enable it. Yeah. Enabling and being a codependent. And there's those of us, too, that refer to themselves as double winners that are both recovering addicts and recovering on the family side as well. Mm -hmm. Leah, this has been tremendous. Before we get into our closing questions, what do you hope? folks get out of your new book fireflies finding light on a journey through addiction i think i just wanted to offer a little hope and a, a little levity and also i mean i just sort of wanted to have it out there of of how you can support your how you can support your loved one how you can support your loved one by putting yourself first by working on what you need to do and and ultimately i would like for the dialogue to be more awareness and mm -hmm. and be able to talk about this disease without it being so taboo and without you know that that it, it just sort of be part of the dialogue you know, because I feel like, you know, if you have a, a loved one with, you know, cancer, everyone comes to your aid. But if you have a loved one with, you know, somebody that has an opioid addiction or is an alcoholic, it's sort of like, well, we, you know, we don't talk about that. You right. know, and it shouldn't be that way. Absolutely not. And recovering out loud, both on the addiction side and on the family side, smashes stigma mm -hmm. and creates opportunities for other people to get well if they are struggling from alcoholism or addiction or on the family side. Oh, absolutely. And I, I just wanted to write the book that I needed, thinking it would probably help someone else feel less, less alone. That would help somebody else maybe recover, you know, that wouldn't absolutely. be so long-term, you know, traumatized that, you, you know, you, that you can live again, that you can be happy again. You'll be okay. You'll be okay. You know? There's no question this will help people. Here's our closing questions. What does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of? Um, well, I have like a sort of a, like a note um, about different things in the morning, like on my mirror. Usually it consists of, you know, being grateful for something and that sort of thing. I try to keep like pretty, pretty busy. I mean, I work, but I also do a lot of volunteering, um, at different activities. I mean, sometimes outside of the recovery community, like I volunteer my son's school and I had a state park newsletter and I go to Al, I go to Al-Anon to this day once a week. And then, you know, I support my husband. He goes to his meetings and, um, you know, I'm always, you know, encourage him to do, I, not that I, you know, nag him or anything like that but if he needs to go and do any of his self-care meetings i always you know do what you need to do you know and i try to you know fit some hobbies and things that are you know healthy for me like i, I like yoga and you know taking my dog for walks and that sort of thing too really mind body and spirit oh absolutely and that self-care which is not easy for those that are recovering from codependency what book or piece of recovery literature had the biggest impact on your recovery? 
Um, the Al-Anon Courage to Change, mm. like our daily reader, is mm. great because it just has like one page of like very relatable things. And if you're, you know, you're a busy caretaker or whatever, it just has a little like daily thing to just be mindful of. Love that. What is the best piece of advice you've received in recovery? Um, <laughs> there, I have like a grandma in Al-Anon and she was always just saying at the end of every meeting, it works if you work it. So work it because you're worth it. I love that. I absolutely love that. And a lot of us think, you know, when you're a codependent or whatever, you have a loved one with addiction, you almost, it hurts your self-esteem in a way. And you have to realize that you are worthy. You are worth the work, you know, to put yourself first. What is the greatest challenge you've had in recovery thus far? Um, I would say that um, when my husband got back from rehab, I had um, a lot of aunt who's actually lived in your neck of the woods in St. Paul that um, that succumbed secondary to her long term um, alcoholism. So that was really hard to, you know, almost losing my husband and then losing her a few Mm. months later. That was that set me back. Absolutely. That's extremely difficult but recovery gives us the tools to be able to get through those difficult times oh yeah absolutely and and i feel like you know sharing and and hopefully you know that you know her her death isn't in vain you know that you know spreading awareness and trying to do my part in the you know giving back you know absolutely what is your greatest success in recovery um, I would say that um, when I wrote my book, I just told my my Al-Anon group about it and um, they had all bought it like that same day. And when I went to the next meeting, they all like gave me a round of applause. And that was very hard. That's amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. This is the last question and it's a fun one. What song symbolizes recovery to you, Leah? And some of the songs that you mentioned, by the way, in the book are great. So you and I have great <laughs> musical taste, both yes, of us. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I wrote, I was listening to the Cage the Elephant album a lot when my husband was in rehab. And honestly, I, I sent an email to the band. I'm like, you guys helped me so much. And, um, but I would say, um, in rehab, they didn't have, they didn't allow internet. So I got my husband like an old school disc man and wanted him to listen to Cage the Elephant Loves the Only Way. Yeah. So I would say that. That's amazing. <laughs> that will be in the show notes. So we'll have a handy link to that amazing Cage the Elephant song. We will have a link to Fireflies Finding Light on a Journey Through Addiction in the show notes. So check that out right now we will have leah's recovery advice and the book that she recommends all in the show notes so check that out leah thank you so much for taking time to join us on the way out podcast and recover out loud with us it was amazing absolutely thank you so much and thank you everybody out there in way out podcast land we will talk to you next time thank you for being a part of the way out we appreciate your ears We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, 
CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.